We are going through the book of Esther. We're full swing into our series. Maybe that's a painful analogy if you're a Dodgers fan this morning because they lost last night. But I believe in the power of prayer. Anyone? Dodgers fan? No? Never mind. No problem. I heard a bunch of amens. More amens in first service than I ever heard during a sermon for the Dodgers. We're looking at this series and this particular book because we're wanting to ask and answer the question, what is it like to live a life of faith in a world that is completely disconnected from God? And this morning, as we will see in Esther, she gives an example of how a life can make a difference because of the difference made in her life. Because this is a longer passage, we're going to pray now. We're going to read it together. So let's pray and let's invite the Holy Spirit to speak to our hearts today as we look at God's Word. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you that every person in this room matters to you. Those who are joining us online matter to you. You're aware of and you are concerned with every detail of our lives. And we're asking that you would speak in to our hearts, speak into our lives. Lord, you know the areas in which differences need to be made in our hearts so that we might make a difference in the way that we live our lives for your kingdom. And so we pray that you would both challenge us and that we would receive those challenges and that you would also encourage us and that we would receive your encouragement. We pray that you would do it all by the power of your Holy Spirit, for the glory of Jesus, for it's in his name we pray. And everyone said, amen. Well, 21 years ago, a Jewish American named Deborah Lipstadt was drawn into a court battle with a Holocaust denier named David Irving. If you remember hearing it in the news, it was a case in which she had to prove in a court of law that the Jewish Holocaust actually happened during World War II against a man, an English historian, who claimed that Hitler was protecting the Jews of Europe and insisted that the Nazi gas chambers were a fairy tale. It was a hard-fought an emotional case. And on April 11th, the year 2000, she won. A film was made about it just a few years ago. It's called Denial. It's a fantastic film. But what the movie doesn't tell you is soon after her court victory, she went to hear the scroll of Esther read in her local synagogue during the celebration of Purim. And when she heard the famous words that we're about to read from Esther chapter 4, these words that say, And who knows but that you have come to a royal position for such a time as this. When she heard these words, she could not help but to think of her own experience. And she said this, Who knows if not for this very reason I got the education I got. I got the upbringing I got. My job. Maybe we're all meant to do one something really significant. And some of us do it on the public stage and some do it by helping a child. Nobody knows of it, nobody sees it, but we're all meant to do something. And maybe this is the something I was meant to do. Now we may never write books or fight big court battles, but all of us have similar longings in our heart. We wanna know that, that our lives matter, that we can make a difference in the world. But hearing those words also raises questions in our hearts. Will I have the courage to face opposition when it comes? Will I have a sense of purpose amidst all the chaos in the world? And will I have conviction when it seems like everything else around me is full of compromise? Can my life make a difference? And are there differences that need to be made in my life? See, all of those, those questions are ultimately answered in the good news of the Christian gospel. And these questions are raised here in Esther chapter 4. We ask, in such a time as this, how can I bring change? And in such a time as this, how can I 
be changed. This is the story of how the courage of one woman saved an entire people from genocide. But she doesn't start out courageous. She's actually changed along the way. And as a result of being changed, she brings change. And this chapter, Esther chapter 4, reveals the defining moment. As we've learned over the last few weeks, the story began with the egocentric King Xerxes, who had removed his first queen, Queen Vashti, for her refusal to follow his wishes, and he replaces her with this Jewish woman, Esther. Esther was rounded up along with hundreds of other girls who were taken against their will, forced into a cruel competition about who the king would be pleased most with. And in the end, the king chose Esther. And while both her and her uncle Mordecai would never have chosen the circumstance that they found themselves in, they were passive up until this point along the way. In fact, they had even deliberately concealed their true identity as Jewish people. That is, until now. We learned in the previous chapter, Esther 3, that Mordecai, in a public display of his identity, he comes out of the shadows and refuses to bow to this newly appointed official, a historic enemy of the people of God, and his name was Haman. Haman was a man who was consumed with pride, blinded with fury when he learned that Mordecai refused to bow to him because Mordecai was a Jew. And in a cold, calculated, and absolutely diabolical fashion, Haman obtains permission from the government based on half-truths and lies to kill not just Mordecai, but all the Jews. And as we come to our chapter today, the whole city, all of the provinces were thrown into confusion on the news that spread that within 11 months, the Jewish people would be destroyed. And as we open the chapter, we're told that the weeping and wailing of potentially thousands of Jews caught everyone's attention. Look at verses 1 through 3. When Mordecai learned of all that had been done, he tore his clothes, put on sackcloth and ashes, and went out into the city, wailing loudly and bitterly. But he went only as far as the king's gate, because no one clothed in sackcloth was allowed to enter it. In every province to which the edict and order of the king came, there was great mourning among the Jews, with fasting, weeping, and wailing. Many lay in sackcloth and ashes. But we learn quickly in the midst of confusion, something happens. Esther begins to change. And as a result, she begins to bring change. Her life makes a difference because a difference is made in her life. How does that happen for her? And how does it happen for us? Well, there's three lessons if we want to make a difference. And the first is this. If you want to make a difference in such a time as this, in such a cultural moment as this, you need to know that disconnecting is not an option. If you want to make a difference in this moment, disconnecting is not an option. At the beginning of this chapter, Esther starts out disconnected. Well, from what and in what ways? Well, there are three areas for Esther, and they're important to note because, honestly, there are three areas where we are often tempted to disconnect in our own lives. First, we find that Esther is disconnected from her problem. And the lesson for us is we cannot disconnect from our problems when they are placed on our doorstep. As the chapter opens here, Esther is seen in a very isolated place. She's living in the palace. Perhaps, I don't know, bad news wasn't allowed in. She wasn't allowed a phone so she could scroll through the evening news. Perhaps she was afraid and raising the issue if she did hear about it, it would blow her cover, revealing her true identity as a Jewish woman. 
But in the very least, we notice at first, Esther does not seem to grasp the seriousness of the situation. And at the end of verse 4, as news spreads to the palace, her first response is to buy her, her older cousin some new clothes. It's how, like, I, I don't know, some people respond like, oh my gosh, suffering? Wait a minute, Amazon, like, you need new clothes. <laughs> We see in verse 4, when Esther's eunuchs and female attendants came and told her about Mordecai, she was in great distress, and she sent clothes for him to put on instead of his sackcloth, but he would not accept them. Some commentators have suggested that she simply wanted Mordecai's public exhibition to stop while avoiding the real issues at hand. And in many ways, here we have a picture of how some of us may actually respond to very real problems when they come into our lives. Because friends, her palace is not unlike the bubbles that some of us create. Sure, we may not have the same resources as Esther, but some of us, we, we create these bubbles for our lives through comfort or through pleasure or entertainment or distraction. Some of us, when difficulties come, it arises within our marriage or our community or amongst our our, our friendships. Our reaction is not to engage, but to escape. Now, I am not suggesting that we have the mental or emotional capacity to process every bit of news that we read. We don't. We've said before, with the unlimited access we have to information that is happening around the world, I'm not suggesting that you need to be able to fully and emotionally process everything that is happening in the year 2021 across the globe. It's not possible. But I am saying, and what we do learn, is that faith is not escapism. Faith is not isolation from real problems when they come to our doorstep. And I say that because some people think that's exactly what faith is. Like Christian faith or Christianity, it's all about like, okay, there's all these problems in the world. Then I go to church and I just totally escape and I just have a little happy clappy time and like I can just forget about all my problems. Like, yay, I like this song. I don't really like the sermon, but I hope they play one of the other songs that I like. Like, yay, I'm just removing myself from all the problems in the world. I'm going to bury my head in the sand through a Sunday service. That's how a lot of people view Christianity as if people are just burying their heads in their sand in the sand. But friends, nothing could be farther from the truth. Coming to church, gathering, hearing the word of God is not about isolating from our problems. It's about bringing our problems to God and looking at them in light of his word and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit so we can face them and meet them in a way that is redemptive. Amen? Christianity, the the life of faith, is not about pretending that everything is okay. It's not about escaping and just going to binge watch on Netflix when things get hard in the world. It's about engaging. And we here have a cautionary tale from Esther, who we find at first is disconnected from her problems before her. Now, I hate admitting this, but our greatest growth often comes from facing those problems, right? I don't like that. I don't like to hear that. Someone's like, Tim, do you want to grow? I'm like, yes, you're going to go through hardship. Dang it. Can I grow through non-hardship? Like, that's, that's what I like. That's how I want to grow. But if we're honest and we talk to friends and family who have grown, they might say something to us like, man, I went through such a hard time this last year, and though I never would have chosen it, I've never grown more. And the same is true for us. We may not like or even welcome, or maybe we're not even responsible for the difficulties that come into our lives. But the answer is not to escape. The answer is not to isolate, but to face it with faith. We can't disconnect from our problems. But secondly, there's another warning. We can't disconnect from our practices. When the people of God were fasting, Esther was not. Instead, she needs to send a servant to find out what in the world is going on. Verse 5. Then Esther summoned Hathach, one of the king's eunuchs assigned to attend to her and ordered him to find out what was troubling Mordecai and why. As the people were all gathered and they were all fasting together, Esther is disconnected. 
And it raises the question of why these spiritual practices are so important and why they must not be neglected. I say this because Christian faith and all the the rhythms and the practices and the disciplines that go with it is often viewed as like more of a personal preference than shared practice. We often view things like gathering together and praying together and fasting and learning together as like going to a, a, a spiritual vending machine and looking at what's on offer and like choosing one. Like, mm, prayer, no, corporate prayer, mm, not really, personal prayer, no, devotion, and eh. teaching, sure, I'll listen to a podcast, like, okay, put my little holy coin in, pull the knob, and out comes that one thing. Look, I've chosen it. <laughs> like, oftentimes, I, I've faced it as, con- as a consumer in different times of my life. Like, well, which one do I want? Not realizing that all of these practices that Scripture calls us to are absolutely vital. Now, why were they fasting? Why did the people of God in the Old Testament fast? Well, fasting was a sign of deep spiritual concern. Every time you see the people of God fasting, it is a sign of deep spiritual concern. It was also a way of fighting against the prevailing idea of eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we die. Because that's how many respond to chaos. That's how many respond to difficulty, either with escapism or cynicism. Like, oh, this is hard. Well, we better party. It's certainly how civilizations in history responded. Like, hey, this is all bad. Well, eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. But in antithesis of that, we see the people of God, and they are fasting. And when we fast, when we abstain from food, whether individually or corporately for a certain period of time, we are reminding ourselves, our bodies, our minds, our hearts are reminded that our default state of being is in need. Like, if it were not for the provision of God, I would be in need. And the hunger pains that you feel when you fast, they're like alarm clocks, like reminding you of how great and how deep your need is for God. And fasting, along with praying, studying, gathering, solitude, all these other different practices in in Scripture, they're important to embrace And they're important to practice. Because this is an obvious lesson, but one that I need to learn time and time again. There's no formation without repetition. Right? We are formed by the things that are repeated in our lives. We're shaped by our habits, for better or for worse. Which raises the question of how much time we spend on our phones and scrolling and all these other things. Like the more you do it, like the more that it shapes you, the more that it affects you. But in a positive way, the more that we give ourselves to study, the more that we give ourselves to prayer, the more that we give ourselves to worship, we are shaped by that because there's no formation without repetition. And in such moments, especially in such moments when there's crisis and chaos like there is now around us, we must reconnect with the shared practices as they are presented in Scripture. It's one of the reasons why the items on our church calendar are so important. Like, for example, our first Tuesday night of prayer and worship, it's, it's a regular rhythm that, as you're able, we're called to commit to and prioritize in our life because we believe that prayer is that important. Worship is that important. It's why, when I look at the church calendar, it's not just like, oh, do I like this event or do I not like it? It's more about like, hey, these are opportunities for me to be formed and shaped and to be formed and shaped together as a community. We cannot disconnect from the practices of Scripture. And third, we cannot disconnect from our people. It's worth noting that when the people were gathering, when the Jewish people were gathering, Esther was not. But instead has to hear about everything through a messenger, verse 6 and 7. So Hathak went out to Mordecai in the open square of the city in front of the king's gate. Mordecai told him everything that had happened to him, including the exact amount of money Haman had promised to pay into the royal treasury for the destruction of the Jews. And thus we have the central moment of of crisis in the story. And Esther will now have to respond. There are some moments throughout history where it might be a little bit easier to practice your faith publicly. 
Certain times, I love to read church history, and there are certain times where even some of the values of Christian faith are actually lining up with how regions and nations are governed, or at least they're held in high regard. There were times in history where church attendance was a cultural thing. For better or for worse, some people just went through the motions, but it was a cultural thing. It was widely accepted, depending on the country you lived in, where going to church would be accepted. But not in this moment. In our moment, most people claim to be spiritual, but not religious. Which is basically another way of saying, I believe in God or I believe in some kind of a, a deity, but I do not want to associate with a, like a people or an organization or any other practices. And what I've seen in recent years is some people have grown skeptical of church altogether. Seeing Christian community as unnecessary. After all, it's all about just a private experience. Or perhaps some people just don't want the burden of community. And it's in such a moment that it's easy for us to disconnect. And yet, friends, if there was ever a time to reconnect, if there was ever a time to double down on these things, the time is now. Because otherwise, we can't live out the vision uh, laid out in Scripture. Because Scripture calls us to love one another. Scripture calls us to teach one another. Christ, uh, scripture calls us to encourage one another, rejoice with one another, weep with one another, use our gifts to serve one another, lift one another up. All the one another's of, of Scripture, these things will not happen if we keep our distance. And so I think of the exhortation in the New Testament book of Hebrews chapter 10 verse 24 and 25 when the apostle writes, let us consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. I love that passage. You can leave it up there for a minute because it's good. He assumes there's going to be a temptation to give up. He assumes that when things are hard, that potentially one of the first things that goes is those shared commitment to people and practices and a willingness to face the problems of the day. But the author writes, wait a minute, stop, pause, consider how we may spur one another on towards love and good deeds, not forsaking, meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another. And far from loosening our grip, we should strengthen it in light of the fact that Jesus Christ is coming again. We should do so all the more as we see the day approaching. Transformation takes place in community. I will not be changed by God's design apart from community. And so it's as if scripture is saying, do not abandon your post. And it was only when Mordecai brought the reality of the situation directly to Esther that she realized her disconnection. And it may be that the Holy Spirit is bringing to your mind certain areas where it might be subtle, but over time there's just been a de-emphasis on facing what you need to face, embracing those, those practices that God calls you to, and to the people and to the gathering of one another. Maybe the Holy Spirit is bringing those things to mind that we might reconnect for such a time as this. There's a challenge. If you want your life to make a difference, disconnecting is not an option. But there's some good news. Secondly, perfection is not required. I heard a hallelujah. Can I get an amen, people? Okay, so the, the first point is like, hey, we cannot disconnect. But second point, encouragement, perfection is not required. Mordecai, notice, wasn't satisfied with Esther's initial response. He urges her to go to the king, verse 8 and 9. He also gave the servant a copy of the text of the edict for their annihilation, which had been published in Susa, to show to Esther and to explain it to her. And he told him to instruct her to go into the king's presence, to beg for mercy, and to plead with him for her people. Hathak went back and reported to Esther what Mordecai had said. However, how does Esther respond? Esther raises the point that following his instruction 
would be extremely risky. And so we find her wrestling with the proposition. Verse 10 and 11. Then she instructed, it's almost like we're getting a vision of like her texting with her cousin. Like, whoop. hey, you need to go to the king. She's like, whoop, but I might die, never, whoop. Then she instructed him to say to Mordecai, verse 11, all the king's officials and the people of the royal provinces know that for any man or any woman who approaches the king in the inner court without being summoned, the king has but one law, that they be put to death unless the king extends the gold scepter to them and spares their lives. But 30 days have passed since I was called to go to the king. What I want to highlight and what I want you to see is that Esther's courage that she's famous for was a work in progress. And it reminds us that in the Christian life, perfection is not required, though progress is necessary. She's wrestling with it. Oftentimes we think of people who are courageous in their faith that they were like born that way, but courageous people are not born, they are made. We might look at another Christian and just feel discouraged, like, oh, they seem so bold. I don't feel bold. You know what, brother or sister, if that's you, you are a perfect candidate to be used by God because God uses imperfect people. In fact, it seems like it's the only raw material that he has to work with in our planet. <laughs> it's imperfect people. Esther, me, you, us. And notice that Mordecai does not give up. He doesn't give up. As she professes that she's afraid, why is she afraid? Either she's afraid because she will die, or she's afraid that her request wouldn't even matter, or maybe, probably, it's a little bit of both. But Mordecai does not give up. And in the following words, there is both a challenge and a great encouragement. First, the challenge. Look at verse 12 through 14. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. Notice Mordecai's faith there. But as for Esther, you and your father's family will perish. So there's a warning here. If she does nothing, she will not be any safer. She would not escape the consequences by isolating herself. And there's a challenge. It's the same challenge to us. But then, Mordecai offers an encouragement. And also some of the most famous words in this book at the end of verse 14. When he says, And who knows, but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. In fact, like a door turns on its hinges, this story turns on these very words. If she doesn't do anything, she is not going to be any safer. It's not going to benefit her or anyone else in any way. But if she does do something, things might change. And friends, what I want us to see is that despite her initial disconnection, despite her resistance, she can still be used. And that is an encouragement. Now, if you're familiar with the story of Esther and you know how it ends, the answer to this question might be obvious. Like, of course she's going to be used. Of course, you know, God worked it out for her to be the right person in the hour of need. But for Esther... And for us today, it's a real question. Because in that moment, she might be thinking, well, what about my past? I haven't been an upstanding example. And you today might be thinking, well, what about my past? Up until this point, like maybe I haven't been living an exemplary life. Maybe I haven't been embracing all that I need to embrace right now. Like, look at my past. Even look at my recent track record. Can God still use a person like me? After all that I've done. Or after all that I've failed to do. See, how you answer that question 
actually highlights the difference between religiosity and Christianity. Because religion says no. Religion says, look at your track record. You are not qualified. You have not been perfect. You have not fulfilled the standard. Like, look at what you've done. Therefore, you are disqualified. But in Christianity, God can still use you despite your track record. And it reminds us of this lesson that is so familiar, but one we need to be reminded of again and again, and it is this. God does not call the qualified. God does not call people who are pre-equipped, pre-righteous for his purposes. In fact, you see this all over scripture. I love it. I think of Moses as an example. Moses is the man that God called and used to be a leader, to lead the nation of Israel out from under the slavery of Pharaoh. And yet, when you read the story, you're like, wow, Moses is amazing. But read the story. Moses is like, I can't do it. In fact, when you read about Moses, it was as if he's looking for all the reasons to tell to God why he couldn't do it. God says, I want you to speak. Moses is like, I can't speak. I'm not a very good speaker. You know what God says? Who made your mouth? Okay. Got me on that one, God. Time and time again, God is saying like, look, I'm the one that's going to do the work in you. I think about the apostle Paul, who was previously known as a man named Saul, who did not promote the church. He sought to destroy the church. Before he met Jesus, he was putting Christians in jail. And then Jesus met him. And on that day, Jesus said, even though you were previously writing letters of death, I'm now going to call you to write letters of life. I'm going to call you to preach the gospel. Was that based on Paul's track record? Perhaps you feel that to step out or to be effective, to engage in such a way that you make a difference. You need to like first rise to a particular standard before God can enable you to be used. But that is not the story of scripture. And this resonates with me for so many reasons. Not only because I live a, a sinful life before I, I met Christ, but also all the, the typical qualifications. Like when God was calling me into ministry, I'm like, Lord, I like, I have a terrible education. You know, all these people are throwing down the three letters like PhD. I'm like, yeah, I got a GED. <laughs> Anyone? A little, little loud for the GED. <laughs> and God's like, Tim, it's not about what you bring to the table. It's about what I bring to the table through you. God does not call the qualified, but you know what he does do? He qualifies the called. And we see this in narrative form in Esther. Mordecai doesn't say, Esther, it's because you've lived perfectly in exile that you can now be in a position to make a difference. It's not what he says. God is able to accomplish his perfect work through imperfect people. This is one of the big lessons of Esther. In fact, it was one of the lessons for Esther. But in no way does this condone the bad decisions of the past. It's God using us in spite of the decisions made in the past. It's about our willingness to respond to when he calls, a willingness to say yes when he speaks to us. But notice, God doesn't leave Esther there. Esther begins to change. Esther does not remain the same. Why? Because third point, grace is what makes all the difference. Grace makes all the difference in our lives. Because notice, up until this point, Esther's been quiet. She's been going with the flow, concealing her identity, disconnecting from the people of God and the practices of faith. Some suggested that she was even pretending to be a pagan. But now is the turning point. And notice how radically different Esther is in verse 15 to 17. Then Esther replies to Mordecai, go gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, I will go to the king, even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. And so Mordecai went away and carried out all of Esther's instructions. Look at what's happening in her life. The Esther we see at the beginning of chapter 4 is not the Esther we see at the end of chapter 4. Instead of distancing herself from her people, she identifies with her people. 
for the first time in the book, it's worth noting. And instead of distancing herself from practices, she calls for them and embraces them. She says, call everyone else to fast, and I'm going to fast too. And instead of distancing herself from the problem, she faces the problem. And underneath it all, notice, she understands that the resource she needs is beyond herself. And it is shown in her request for the people to fast for her. It's another way of saying, I'm willing to do this, but I don't have what it takes. And maybe you feel like that this morning, like, okay, despite my track record, I know that there's needs in front of me. I know there's opportunities, but I don't have what it takes. But friend, that has always been the truth for the people of God. God said to Israel, I did not choose you because you were a great nation and you had all this great accolade and your resume was awesome. And God's like, well, yeah, you're a perfect candidate for my people. I chose you because I'm going to display my glory through you. And that's how it works in the Christian economy and in the economy of grace. God has chosen the foolish things of this world to confound the wise. And it's precisely because of our inadequacy that God's adequacy is put on full display. And in the end, when he does his work, we don't get the credit. He gets the credit and we get the benefit. It's amazing. That's how it works. And we see with this change that grace is not a license to sin. Grace is a motivation to love. It wasn't as if Esther, oh yeah, just go on continuing to disconnect. No, upon realizing that she needs something beyond herself and that despite her choices in the past, that her decision in the moment can bring forth change, we see a picture of grace. Because as we know, grace meets you where you are, but grace never leaves you where you are. And it is so true. And there's several ways here I see grace changing her. Notice, grace moves her beyond herself. And that's what grace does. When you understand that everything you have is a sheer gift of God and His grace, grace moves you beyond yourself. To save her people, she had to identify with them. And notice even practically, this means it's showing that she's finding her identity outside of her job and beyond her possessions. See, most people, when they make idols out of their job and their possessions, those become the most important factors in their decision-making. But the fact that she's willing to give it all up shows what's truly important to her. Her true treasure is now found outside the palace. She's finding an identity outside her job and beyond her possessions. And friends, if you want to know one of the practical ways in which you can make a difference right now in your job, in your community, amongst your relationships, is when you tell other people and showcase it in the way that you live your life, that the story is more than about you. You could say, you know what? I want to do good at my job, but it's not about my job. It's about Jesus. And it's because Jesus has called me into this job that I want to do a good job. Whether I get a raise or I don't get a raise, this is all about me serving Jesus. And even if God changes my job and I lose my job and I have to get another job, my identity is in Christ, not in my work. And if my possessions increase to the glory of God for the use of his kingdom, praise God. If God in his sovereignty seeks to take them away for a season or whatever, you could say, nonetheless, I'm still going to praise God because it's always about him. One of the most effective ways right now in the time of craziness to showcase the grace of God is by showing your contentment in Christ. Because grace moves you beyond yourself, and grace also moves you to give of yourself. And we see this in Esther. Instead of seeking to save herself, she actually seeks to offer herself on behalf of her people. And she says, remarkably, if I perish, I perish. It's a remarkable turnaround for Esther. But the main point of the story, friends, is not be like Esther. I say that because a lot of us, sometimes we hear or read these stories in the Old Testament, you're like, oh, I gotta be like Esther. And then when you fail, you're like, oh, dang it, I wasn't Esther enough. And all your friends, you're like, oh, you gotta be more Esther. Yeah, I'm gonna be super Esther this week. <laughs> the main point that we're to get as we read through Esther is not that she is merely an example, though in some cases she is. She is a representative. She's a representative. 
there is a uniqueness about her that actually cannot be imitated. Other Jews living at that time could not imitate what she does. And what are those unique reasons? Well, first of all, she is the only possible mediator that can bring a change. Why? Because she both belongs to the royal palace and also to the common people at the same time. She is both Persian royalty at this point in the story, and she belongs to the Jewish people. That means she is the ideal candidate because she can bring reconciliation between two parties because she represents both. See where this is going? Jesus, Sunday school answer, good job. She is a unique representative because she is chosen to step out from her people and whatever happens to her will determine the fate of her people. It is a saving event in which the chosen mediator wins the victory while all the rest of the people will stand by and share in it. That's what we're meant to see in Esther. And in that, this story is a signpost showing us how God saves. We must see it in the larger story of God's work for us. Esther is a mediator, but Jesus is a better mediator. Just as a mediator was needed to intercede with King Xerxes to remove the death sentence and to free her people, so you and I, we need a mediator with God. God is the true king who of course is completely different than King Xerxes. God is just, he is good, he is holy. But we have all rebelled against him. We've sinned against God. We cannot imagine just sauntering into God's presence when we've turned from him, rebelled against him, and sinned against him. We need a mediator, someone to represent God to people and people to God, and Jesus is ours. And notice the parallels. Jesus can save us precisely because he is both royalty and he also identifies with us. He is both our holy God and he is also fully man. Jesus is the son of God who did not isolate himself from us but came from heaven to identify with us. And in choosing to do so, he did not remain in the palace but he gave up his palace to go all the way to the point of a cross. And that is the gospel where when Jesus died on that day for your sins and my sins, he didn't say it was a matter of if I perish. He said, when I perish, because he came to die for you. He came to die for me. It wasn't just a risk. It was an actual cost, and it was his purpose to do so. The lesson is not ultimately be like Esther. It's allow Esther to point you to Jesus. Because as the Apostle Paul says in 1 Timothy 2.5, there is one God and one mediator who can reconcile God and humanity, the man Christ Jesus. And what did he do? He gave his life to purchase freedom for everyone. That's the gospel, friends. It's the grace of Jesus Christ as our mediator, making the difference in us that enables us to make a difference right now in this county, in this year, even on this day. I don't know where many of you will end up in the future, but in God's providence, you live in Ventura County, or wherever it is that you're from, for such a time as this, for however long God has you here until he calls you elsewhere, today is a day of decision. By showing us all the good that comes from Esther's decision, we are meant to think about our decisions today. Sure, we may never be in a situation like Esther or Mordecai, but every one of us has and will face defining moments. And the greatest of those moments is the decision we make in response to the good news about Jesus Christ. If you are here this morning or you're watching online and you have not made a decision for Jesus to trust in him as your Lord and Savior, you must know it is the 
most important decision you will ever make in your life. And by contrast, not choosing to trust in Jesus is the most important decision you will ever make in your life. Because it's the difference between being eternally with God or eternally separated from God because of sin. And you are here or you're joining us right now and you are hearing the good news of Jesus and the Holy Spirit calls you to respond. It is, friend, if that is you, don't waste another minute. It is the most important decision you can make because the good news is though you're dead in sin, you have a mediator and his name is Jesus Christ. And he died on a cross for you and he rose again on the third day to give you new life. Trust in him today. Make that decision. And for us as a church, for believers, perhaps like Esther, you were brought into a situation. The one you're in right now, it's beyond your control. Maybe, like Esther, it was combined with some flawed decisions you've made along the way. Maybe you haven't been innocent in the process. Perhaps some of us have been concealing our identity as believers. Or maybe some of you have just been following the path of least resistance. But now you find yourself in a very difficult situation. Emotionally, personally, relationally, professionally, whatever it is. Well, the decision that matters now is the decision you make in response to Jesus. And the Holy Spirit invites you to turn to him if you've drifted, if you've compromised, if you've just been disconnected or just like a low level like cynicism about the life that God's calling you to live. The Holy Spirit convicts you of that and he invites you to repent and to turn because the good news, friends, is even if we take a thousand steps away from Christ, it's only one step back because of the cross. That's good news. And this morning, we can turn back to him. It is not too late. If you're alive and you have a pulse and you're breathing right now, it is not too late. You can make a difference in this moment because Jesus Christ is the one who makes a difference in you. He is our mediator. And it's as we decide even right now to rest in this grace and identify with Christ and his people that his purposes are filled through us. And that means you can bring changed because you can be changed. So let's pray right now and ask the Holy Spirit to do that in us, whatever area it might be. As we bow our heads and prepare our hearts to pray, I invite you to be honest with God and honest with yourself and just invite the Holy Spirit to speak to you. You do not need to be afraid because by grace, you have a mediator through whom you have forgiveness, acceptance, power, and purpose. Let's pray now that we would turn to him. Heavenly Father, we pray now that your Holy Spirit would reveal any ways in which we have turned from you, or maybe it's just a, a disconnect. Just sense right now it might even be some areas where it's not a conscious disconnect, but there's certain areas of our lives we're just not inviting you into. It could be marriage, our parenting, our friendships, our neighbors, our workplace. Maybe we didn't set out doing it, Lord, but we've just slowly ceased to invite you in. Pray that today would be a moment where we just turn and say, God, I invite you in, and I thank you that you accept me by grace, and you're not going to work on the basis of my past track record. You're going to work on the basis of your perfect track record, because Jesus, you're my mediator. And as a result, God, I pray that you'd use us for such a time as this. And if there's anyone who does not yet know you, I pray that right now during this time of response, they would believe and just pray from their heart, Jesus, save me. Save me. I believe you died on a cross for my sins. I believe you rose again on the third day. Save me. I put my trust in you. May you save them today, God. 
And may you move right now as we respond in Jesus' name. Amen. Friends, I wonder if in your heart how you would answer this question, where do you need to see a difference? Where is it that God wants to bring a difference into your life? It could be your relationships. It could be your attitude. It could be your actions, your words, your behavior. It could be your friendships and relationships. Well, if we were aware of our need, like the people were aware of their great need on that day in Esther 4, my encouragement to you is to bring it to prayer. In a moment, there's going to be some men and women up to my right and to my left. They're going to be wearing the prayer lanyards. And I invite you to bring that area to prayer. Just come up and just say, I need God to make a difference in this area of my life. Let's not hold back. Let's come and ask him for that change. Let's ask him for that power. Let's ask him, maybe you need encouragement. Maybe you need just grace to overwhelm you. Just feel like, man, I'm just stuck in a religious legalistic rut and I need to be brought out of it. Come, friend, if that's you, come and pray. You can get out of your seat, move through the rows and come pray with these men and women. And as we sing together, we're singing to our God of grace. We're singing in response to our mediator, Jesus Christ. And if you believe that Jesus is your mediator, I am asking you to proclaim that today by coming up and taking communion, eating the bread, drinking the cup, remembering Christ's body broken for you, his blood shed for you. That's the foundation upon which you are accepted and loved and empowered and forgiven and renewed and restored and used for such a time as this. So in response to that grace, let's celebrate that today. Let's come down to the carpets, get on our knees, lift our hands and glorify our incredible God of grace. Amen. Let's not hold back, friends. Let's not go through routines. Let's dive in and let's respond to what the Holy Spirit wants to do in our lives. Let's do that now.